reading today is Mark 3, Mark chapter 3, and starting at verse 7. If you haven't got a Bible, I think there'll probably be some Globe member boys to, to bring you one, so just wave a hand, don't be embarrassed about that. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 1004, Mark chapter 3, and starting at verse 7. Just give people a moment to turn there. Great. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around the Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he healed, had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonerges, which means son of thunder, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He's possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting round him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle round him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Well, good afternoon. If you don't know me, my name's Phil. It's a pleasure to see you, and it's a pleasure to be spending time in God's Word with you. So why don't we pray as we do that? 
Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us Mark's gospel. You've preserved it. You've brought it together to speak to us this afternoon here in this place. That is all part of your plan. You know every one of us. You know our hearts. You know who we are. You know our stories. We pray that you would deal with each one of us. You would help us to see more of Christ, to understand more about him. Lord, help us to see ourselves, to understand ourselves. And please, by your spirit, work in us that we might come to Jesus as our saviour. Lord, work in us as a church as well, together, not just as individuals, but speak to us as the Globe Church family. Lord, if there are things you want us to change, things you want to tell us through your word today, please do that now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you to sum yourself up in a couple of sentences, what would you say? What makes you you. I find Twitter profiles quite interesting for that. You know, you kind of get a couple of sentences to say, hey world, this is me. And people say all sorts of goofy things. My favourite one is Robert Downey Jr.'s The Actor. His, his profile just says this, you know who I am. And then a picture of Iron Man, which is pretty hard to beat. Our very own Trevor Archer, his Twitter profile says this, 10 million followers. This is, this is him on Twitter. Christian Pilgrim, husband to Val, father of four, granddad to three. That's how he describes himself. That's Trevor in a nutshell. And actually, I think Trevor's onto something there. He's described himself in relation to other people. Did you notice that? Husband to Val, father of four, granddad to three. That's who he is. Because essential to our identity is who we are in relation to other people. That's part of us. So I'm Phil, but I'm Vicky's husband. You can't really know who I am as Phil without knowing that I'm Vicky's husband and Rose's dad. That's, that's me. That's part of me, my relationships. We are who we are in relation to others. But at the same time, we have this other view of ourselves and our identity, particularly in the West, that kind of pushes against that. We perceive ourselves as autonomous, as individuals, free from anybody else. To be truly me is to be free from having to define myself in relation to other people. We don't want to be defined by being our boss's employee or our uh, parent's child or even a citizen of a nation. I'm me. I don't need you or anybody to make me me. I'm autonomous. I'm free. Or the way that sometimes we talk about it is, man is an island. We are islands. I don't need you. And that's something we really prize, our autonomy, our individual freedom from needing anybody else. Now, this view of ourselves as autonomous, neutral people, is a problem when it comes to Jesus. So far in Mark's Gospel, we've seen Jesus call people to follow him at the drop of a hat they follow him. We've seen him drive out demons. We've seen him cleanse the unclean. He's pronounced divine forgiveness of sins. He's being presented to us as the divine Messiah. That's the big thing. He's come from God to bring in God's kingdom. And here's what could happen. We could find ourselves kind of observing. Observing Jesus. We are, after all, autonomous and neutral people. We just observe him over there. I am an island. I will decide how much he's going to affect me, how much influence he's going to have on me. We're kind of like theatre critics, you know, sitting in the seat with our 
pad and paper and deciding, well, maybe this will move me. Maybe he will inspire me. Maybe he will change my life, but I will decide. I'm autonomous. I'm free. Mark 3, which we're going to look at today, says to us this afternoon that we are not autonomous islands. Who we are in relation to other people really does matter. In fact, the most unavoidable and fundamental issue for our identity as human beings is actually who we are in relation to Jesus. That's our big question for this afternoon. Who are we to Jesus? What we're going to see is that in this chapter, there are no kind of neutral, cool, autonomous people who are just kind of observing Jesus and, you know, they're kind of islands. There are no people like that in chapter 3, and we'll see that actually there are no people like that in this room either. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to ask the big question as we look through and walk through with these different people encountering Jesus. Who are they to Jesus? And then look at ourselves. Who are we in relation to Jesus? That's what we're going to do. So first up in this story... We have the crowd, the crowd. So Jesus has just been in the synagogue and the plot to kill him has begun. So in verse 7, have a look down. He withdraws with his disciples to the lake. Jesus pulls away. But the people, they pile in. A large crowd from Galilee followed. So word spreads about Jesus. North, south, east and west. People are piling in from all over the place. If it was here, say Jesus was on the south bank, it would get on Facebook, Jesus is here, and people would get on the tube from all the edges of London, and they would pile in. That's what's happening. Crowds and crowds of people are coming in. And the crowds become so big that Jesus gets his disciples to get him a boat. Why does he do that? Have a look at verse 9. To keep the people from crowding him. These aren't polite English people who... Form a queue. We are a queue-forming nation, aren't we? we? We like our queues, and if someone violates the queue, they are a bad, bad person. These people are piling in. Look at verse 10. Why are they doing this? He healed many, so that those with the diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Pushing forward is putting it mildly. Jesus is going to get crushed here. That's the scene, Okay. Now, throughout Mark's Gospel, you've got to watch out for the crowd. They're like a character who keep coming up all the way through. We're going to see them. They're everywhere. But here, here's who they are in relation to Jesus. They are frenzied, but they are fleeting. They're frenzied, but fleeting. Their enthusiasm for Jesus is it's overwhelming. And actually, it would probably put our enthusiasm for Jesus to shame. But watch the crowd carefully. Jesus, in the previous chapter, has just established himself as the one who can give divine forgiveness. Forgiveness for sins. Are they crushing him because they want to be forgiven? No. Jesus has something they want to be healed, which he, he is willing to give. But they're not interested in the other things he's offering. They're not interested in his agenda. They've got an agenda as a crowd. And the crowd's enthusiasm, we'll see right throughout Mark's Gospel, their enthusiasm remains high in all sorts of ways, but it kind of changes. So we end up with them not shouting, Jesus, heal us, but crucify him. That's where the crowd end up. 
See, the crowds are not this cool, autonomous bunch of people who are just kind of watching, examining Jesus. No, they've got an interest. It's a kind of frenzied, enthusiastic interest. But it's, it's fleeting, it's shallow. Do we get a buzz out of Jesus? Perhaps we feel like he, he improves our lives in some way. Jesus gives us a cause to be a part of. Meaning. Something exciting in what can be, honestly, a monotonous life. The Globe Church is exciting, isn't it? It's fresh. It's new. Here we are, a crowd. Now, this is where it could get quite close to home for us. What are we here? An enthusiastic crowd of people. Here for Jesus. Does that sound familiar? So here's the danger. The danger is, we should be excited about Jesus, but the danger is that we're excited about Jesus because of what we've decided we want to get from him. And because of the buzz that being part of this crowd brings us, rather than because of what he says we need from him. Rather than because we want to follow him on his terms. Do you see the difference? Getting something out of him for what we want, and the buzz of the crowd, are we excited about Jesus because of what he says he's come to give us. Who are we in relation to Jesus? The spotlight's on us. Is this us? Frenzied, enthusiastic, but actually shallow to Jesus. Frenzied, but fleeting. The second encounter with Jesus comes in verse 11. And this time, it's a little bit odd. Have a look down. Impure spirits. Demons. Have a look at verse 11 with me. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. So, like the crowds, the impure spirits are characters that you kind of need to watch throughout Mark's Gospel. They keep popping up. And one thing stands out every time we meet these demons, these impure spirits. They are always correct about Jesus. They're always correct. The declaration here, you are the son of God, what is right, isn't it? In fact, they're showing greater insight than anyone else has really shown so far in Mark's gospel. They're dead right. He is the son of God. They even fall down before him. Do you see that? They know whose presence they are in. The son of God. They're down on their knees. But here's who they are to Jesus. They are correct, but cold. They're correct, but cold. In chapter 1, the impure spirit saw Jesus and asked this, Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They know who Jesus is. He's the Holy One of God. But get their attitude. Have you come to destroy us? They hate him. They're opposed to him. They know he's come to destroy them. We're going to see a little bit more of this later. But this is what's going on with Jesus coming along. The time of Satan's rule of of sin and death and destruction is over. Jesus, the Son of God, has come. The King has shown up. And these demons know it. Have you come to destroy us? They shudder. They hate that he's here. Because here's the thing. It's one thing to know the truth. But it's another thing to love the truth. Perhaps we find Christianity 
intellectually stimulating. Maybe we find Jesus compelling. His power in these chapters is undeniable. But the thought of him actually ruling us is, is horrible to us. Our hearts are actually cold to that idea. We don't like the idea of Jesus' rule. And the reason for that is because every one of us are hardwired to hate God's rule because we want to rule. We probably never expected to turn up to church this afternoon and have our attitude find an affinity with demons. But here it is. To sit and listen to sermons on Mark's gospel, to see Jesus so clearly for who he is, to even be convinced that he is the saviour and the son of God, and yet to find our hearts cold, even bitter towards that, is a very serious thing indeed. It's a very serious place to be. Because Jesus doesn't just want us to agree with him. He doesn't want us to tick some boxes. He wants us to worship him. The demons agree with Jesus, but they do not want to worship him. They do not love him. Now, one of the things that is at the heart of who we are as a church, as we're getting started, we're always talking about this, is that we, we love the Bible. We love the word of God. It's, it's at the heart of who we are because that's how God speaks to us. That's how we encounter him and he transforms us. I hope maybe quite a few of us are coming on to Wednesday nights to Globe Focus. I really hope you're enjoying studying the character of God from the Bible. But make no mistake, if these impure spirits were in that study, they'd get all the questions right. They'd beat us on doctrine, hands down. They're correct. Oh, they know who God is. They know the character of God. But they hate it. Why do we study God's word then? What's the difference between us and them? What should the difference be? We study God's character because we want to delight in him. We study his holiness and his providence and his justice and all of those things because we want to honor him as as we should. We want to fall down before him, not shuddering, not saying, are you here to destroy us? But in worship and love. That's the difference. So let us strive as we start as a baby church. We pray this for Silver Street as well. To be a church who love truth. Why? Because we love the God that truth is about. To love truth because we love the God that truth is about. Is this us? Is this us? Who are we to Jesus? Are we correct about everything about God but actually cold? So we've had the crowds. We've had the demons. But there's... There's a certain distance about them to God. We wouldn't describe them as being close to Jesus. But now we're going to come to some people who are much, much closer. The kind who on their Twitter profile will definitely want to say, I'm Bob, I'm a friend of Jesus. Okay, They're going to want to put that up there. That's part of who they are. This time we're going to see, not the crowds, not the demons, but Jesus' associates, people close to him. We're going to come back to the appointing of the twelve later, but come with me to verse 20. So Jesus has gone from the lake, he's gone up a mountain, and then he comes to a house. And guess who's at the house in verse 20? The crowd. There's so many of them, they're going to struggle to get some food for the disciples. But things get really interesting in verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind What we have as family here isn't kind of mum, dad, brothers and sisters. Um, We're going to actually come to them later. What we have is a term for those who are 
they're really close to Jesus. Friends, his inner circle, maybe even extended family. If you think, maybe, maybe you're on Facebook. I mean, I've got like 700 friends or something. There's no way I'm actually friends with that many people. In fact, some of them I actually know I really don't like. But you know, like people from school are saying, oh, I'd your friend and you feel bad, so you kind of say yes. But they're not my friends. Have a think about your five people, maybe in your life, who, who are your close, close people. Maybe it is family, maybe it is friends. The ones you trust, the ones you love, the ones you love to spend time with. That's these guys. Okay? Did you see what they want to do to Jesus? They want to take charge of him. Because they think he's out of his mind. They think he's mad. I want us to feel the shock of this. They want Jesus sectioned. I had a friend who was sectioned once. And it's a horrible thing to have to do to anybody. To, to have to restrain someone and put them away because they're a danger. I wouldn't wish that upon anybody, let alone a friend. And these guys, his friends, they're not going to call the police. They're ready to go around themselves and take charge of Jesus and pull him away and section him. What on earth is going on? Here is who they are to Jesus. They're close but they're controlling. They're close, but controlling. We've maybe experienced people in our lives who the way they relate to us is controlling. Maybe people who've been very close to us, but who have tried to control us and who we are, what we do, and manipulate us, maybe emotionally manipulate, maybe physically. It's a horrible kind of relationship to have that intimacy and yet to be controlling could it be that that's who we are to jesus we are close we love jesus we sing about jesus we talk about jesus we gladly call ourselves christians we don't consider ourselves to be in the crowds no no no, no. we have a personal relationship with jesus and yet perhaps that personal relationship is actually a controlling relationship what might that look like? It could be that as much as we love Jesus and we love to talk about him and we love to sing about him, there are things he does and things he says that, frankly, we just don't like. We, we really do wish we could take hold of him and silence that part of Jesus. So our society today, we know this, cries out that what Jesus says about hell, about morality particularly about sexuality and marriage, that what Jesus says about those things is, is mad. There's no other way to describe it. It's mad. It's outrageous. It's an embarrassment that should be relegated to the dark ages. So how might we be tempted to control Jesus? We could be tempted to control him by taking those bits of what Jesus says about those things and taking charge of what bits of teaching we're going to follow. Jesus, you know what? I love you. I love what you say about love and acceptance and forgiveness. But you just can't say that today. We find ourselves sectioning up the Bible then. In bits we like, bits we don't like. And here's what we're doing. We've got to see the reality of this. When we section up Jesus' word, 
is tantamount to wanting him sectioned. We want to put him away. Because the way you treat Jesus' words is the way you treat him. Now this way of relating to Jesus, I really think we've got to believe this, is alive and well in our churches today. It really is. There's a trend that I've come across recently in churches like ours who say they love the Bible, they love Jesus, they want to tell people about Jesus and see people saved. There's a trend in churches even like ours to say something like this. We believe what the Bible says about homosexuality, but we're not going to preach it. We believe that the Bible teaches that marriage is between a man and a woman. We believe that sex is for married men and women, but we're not going to talk about it. Do you see what's going on? They're trying to control Jesus. That's an attitude of taking hold of him and putting those part of him away that we don't think that Jesus should have said. Do we think that's an okay way to treat Jesus? Do you think that's okay? We want to say to you as, as the church leaders here, that as much as we can, we will endeavour to tell you everything Jesus says. Even the bits that are hard. Even the bits that are an embarrassment today. Even the bits that we struggle with. Because to do anything else with Jesus in his word would be to treat him like a madman rather than as our king. Who are we to Jesus? Are we close but actually controlling him? Fourth up. We started with the crowds. They travelled in from all over the place. Now come with me to verse 22, because here we see that Jesus has attracted the attention of the teachers of the law. They've come from the religious capital, Jerusalem. Now if you spent time reading the Gospels, um, you may have picked up a kind of view of the teachers of the law that is a little bit pantomime villain. Okay, so Jesus is over here, he's doing some miracles. Jesus is healing some people. Look behind you, Jesus. The teachers of the law are coming. And here they come along. We're the teachers of the law. We're killjoys. We don't like anything. And so they just, they become this kind of two-dimensional villain character that we kind of go boo-hiss when they come on the scene. But that's too simplistic. Think with me about who they are, okay? What are they teachers of? Teachers of the law. That's not the kind of civil law. That's God's law. They know better than anybody the revealed will of God and how he wants people to live. Not only do they know God's law and God's plan for his people, they love his law. They are passionate about it. Israel at the time, understand the context of what's going on, they're occupied by the Romans. So what might start happening to Israel's worship? They're meant to have pure worship of God, but you've got all these Romans around them who worship other gods. The temptation is going to be to be influenced by their worship of these pagan gods and take that in. So the danger right now for the people of God is that their worship is going to become impure. And so you get the teachers of the law, whose job it is, is to keep people's worship pure, to keep them obeying the law. Their passion is to keep God's people pure. Their job is to guide God's people as they wait for the Messiah. These guys are spiritual You've got to believe it. They are spiritual religious people. They're not the pantomime villain. Look at what their verdict on Jesus is in verse 22. The teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, they traveled all the way to see him. This is what they said. He's possessed by Beelzebub. 
by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. They say, Jesus is not the Messiah. He's not from God. He's from Satan. More than that, the power that Jesus has undeniably displayed. Notice they're not denying that he's driving out demons. They see it, but they say it comes from this dark power within him. Have you noticed in this chapter how quiet Jesus has been? He's not actually said very much to the the crowds and demons and all these these people. (coughs) But he says a lot to these guys. What he does is he gives their verdict on who they are in relation to him. Here's who they are to Jesus. The teachers of the law are spiritual, but they are separate from God. They're separate from God. They're spiritual, but separate. They've accused Jesus of working for Satan. And so in verse 23, Jesus shows, basically his argument is, that's a really bizarre idea that I'm working for Satan. Have a look at verse 23 with me. So Jesus, in reply, called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. Jesus has been driving out satanic demons. Why would Satan drive out satanic demons? There's just no, makes no sense to do that. It's like a kingdom fighting itself, having a civil war. Sooner or later, it's going to crumble. It's going to weaken the kingdom. Or like a household bickering, divided, trying to tear itself apart. That's not strong. That's weak. If Jesus is evil, why is he attacking evil? It's basically what Jesus says to them. And then he tells them what he's really doing. Have a look at verse 27. In fact... No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Remember what Jesus announced in chapter 1. The kingdom of God has come near. Jesus has entered the world ruled by his arch-opposer, Satan, filled with people like us who also oppose God. And Jesus is saying, he's using kind of picture language for us, he's saying, when I drive out demons... I'm tying Satan up. He's the strong man. I'm tying him up. That's why he's driving out the demons, because the kingdom of God has come. It's invading this world. Jesus is winning. That's what's going on. Now, back to the teacher's law and who they are in relation to Jesus. We really must see the gravity of what they've said about him. Remember who they are? The custodians of God's word, the guardians of his people. So God sends his king, his son, the Messiah, who's been promised, who they should be looking out for, who's in the process of defeating Satan, and they encounter him and say, he's with Satan. That's what they're saying. Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 10, the Spirit descends upon him. That's who's in Jesus. Pure, holy, fulfilling God's plan. And they're saying, no, 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 no. It's not a Holy Spirit in Jesus. It's a demonic spirit. It's evil. It's impure. Jesus is pure, doing God's will, God's king. And they position themselves squarely in opposition to Jesus. Do you see that? They're not kind of misunderstanding. They're not kind of figuring it out. They have made their mark. They know where they are. They are in opposition to Jesus. 
Which explains why we get these really strong words in verse 28. Look down with me. This is what he says to them, standing in opposition to Jesus. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, literally every blasphemy they blaspheme, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Why did he say this? Because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Now we have a problem with this word blaspheming because in our culture it means using God's name as a curse word, which is something we shouldn't do, but I don't think that's what's going on here. And remember, this isn't addressed to kind of some ignorant people who just have misunderstood, they've kind of not quite understood Jesus properly. Remember who they are. They know the law of God. What does Jesus mean when he says they can't be forgiven for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Think about it. Who would you expect to be guaranteed 100% in the kingdom of God? It's these guys, right? The teachers of the Lord. They are, they are in. They are getting eternal life. Surely. But Jesus stands before them and says, no. You are not in. You are out. You cannot stand before the Son of God, accuse the Holy Spirit of being a satanic spirit, and expect God on that day when you meet him just to go, oh, forget about it. You're teachers of the Lord. You're, you're good guys. Don't worry about it. Forgiven. This isn't meant to make us panic. Remember, verse 28, God does forgive sin. He forgives us saying all sorts of terrible things. But if we persist in saying and believing that Jesus is not the Son of God, is not the Savior, is not the King, that is not okay. That is a very, very serious thing. Believing that Jesus is not God's Savior King is to stand outside of God's forgiveness. Chapter 1, this is big, Jesus' big manifesto for his mission. He calls people to repent and believe the good news. If you repent and believe the good news, you will be forgiven. This isn't meant to make us freak out. It's that simple. If you repent and believe the good news of Jesus as your Savior and King, you will be forgiven. But the teachers of the law, what are they doing? They are refusing to repent. They are refusing to believe the good news. And so they cannot be forgiven. So the question this is meant to put before us is, will we repent and believe the good news about Jesus? Or will we put ourselves in this place over here, squarely opposed against Jesus, and say, no, I will not repent. I will not believe who you are. These guys are spiritual, but they're separate. The idea of spirituality is getting a bit of resurgence in our day. in the past, maybe, there, there was a kind of a vogue of spiritual is kind of for, for losers and idiots, but it's really kind of popular again. Our world is full of spiritual people, wise people, people with lots of insights, who are sincere and devout in their spirituality. But what does this tell us about that kind of spirituality? All the spirituality in the world counts for nothing when Jesus stands before us, tells us dead plainly who he is, and we say... I'm a spiritual man. No, you're not the son of God. You're a prophet. No, you're not the son of God. You're just a man. No, you're not. You're fictional. No, you're just one way to God. To say that is to appear very, very spiritual. But actually, it's to stand separate from God. It's that serious. So who are we to Jesus? Do we come to him with this depth of spirituality, but actually deny who he is? (coughs) We said at the beginning that no man is an island. 
that idea of autonomy, autonomy. But everyone must face up to this question. Who are we to Jesus? Are we frenzied but fleeting? Correct but cold? Close but controlling? Spiritual but separate? Now as we finish, we need to ask, well, what does Jesus have to say about all this? What is the right way of relating to him? Well, Jesus tells us in our final encounter. Now remember where Jesus is, okay? He's in a house. So Jesus is inside a house, and then in verse 31, his mother and brothers arrive. Where do they stand? They're outside, right? So they send someone in to call Jesus out. And the crowd sitting around Jesus say, hey, your family are outside. Now Jesus' reply in verse 33 is strange. Who are my mother and brothers? To which you want to say, the people outside. Who are your mother and brothers? Who said they want to see you? But Jesus, inside the house, looks at those seated in a circle around him, and he says, here are my mother and brothers. Now, you don't get closer than blood relations, do you? That is as close as you get. We've had crowds, we've had demons, we've had friends, we've had religious leaders, but family, family, these guys are close. Like we said at the start, our identity is tied up in who we are to other people. Do you remember Trevor's Twitter thing? The way he defined himself was in relation to his family, his wife, his children, his grandchildren. That's as close as you get. And Jesus doesn't disagree with that. What he does is we just redefines who his family is. Verse 35. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Outside the house are his blood relatives. But inside the house are those who are sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. And those who listen to Jesus have their lives transformed to do God's will. Jesus invites us to sit at his feet, to be inside, to listen to him, to submit to him, to leave a life with me as king and believe the good news that he is king. Because we need him to forgive us for not doing God's will. We need him to go where he's going to go in Mark's gospel and die on the cross to enable us to be in his family. We've seen all these different ways of relating to God now. But actually, in the end, there are only two. There's in and there's out. There's inside the house or outside the house. His blood relatives, as close as you can possibly get, are on the outside. His new family, they're on the inside, the ones who listen to him and do God's will. We've seen that enthusiasm, correctness, closeness, spirituality, and even blood relation to Jesus all count for nothing if in the end we don't accept Jesus for who he says he is and sit at his feet. Who does Jesus want us to be to him? He wants us to be family. That's how he wants us to be defined in relation to him. Family. Isn't that great? Isn't that close? Isn't that intimate? Not in the crowd, not out there, but family. Because we have more than blood relations to Jesus. It's even closer than that. And Jesus shed his blood to be the way in which this can be us. The way in which we can be in his family.
the spotlight in Mark's gospel in many ways is on Jesus. And we've, over the last few weeks, seen so much of who he is. And this afternoon, Jesus turns the spotlight on us. He turns the spotlight on us and says, you've seen who I am. Who are you to me? Who are you in relation to me? I'm God's king. I'm the Messiah. I've come to bring you forgiveness, hope, and a new kingdom where you follow me. Who are you to me? We might like to think of ourselves as islands. Needing no one to define myself. Needing no one to be me. But everyone is defined by who they are in relation to Jesus. Without exception. So the question this afternoon is this. Will we come to Jesus on his terms? Sitting at his feet. As his family. Listening to him. And letting him transform us to do God's will. Who are we to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see ourselves. Help us to be honest about ourselves and our own hearts. To see Christ for who he is. And to see our heart's response. Please give us clarity to see you and to see us. And we ask that your spirit would produce in us the right response. The humility to sit at Christ's feet, to listen to him, to follow him, to accept him on his terms. Thank you that you have made yourself so clear. We are not in a guessing game here. But you have come to us and shown yourself. Now, Lord, please, by your grace, help us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.